Oh, wait, you gave me a video. What's this? Is this the song? No, it's a, it's a trailer for Sabrina. The 1954 I, I Sabrina story. Audrey Hepburn. I love Hepper. that movie. Well, Harrison Ford one's good, too. We'll see if you love the book as much as you love the romantic comedy, Sabrina. This <laughs> Sabrina being very much the opposite of a romantic comedy. What's on your mind, old chum? Well, I was thinking how in today's world, when an atrocity is committed in the public eye, there's the usual mad rush to figure out what happened, but what follows is this inevitable long tail of conspiracy theories and strangers just randomly injecting themselves into the tragedy, creating this complete buildup of chaos and noise. Uh, dude, I was hoping for a quiet, happy, jokey introduction. For fuck's sake, man. Well, we are reading Sabrina by Nick Dernasso this episode, so I don't think that's possible. I just want to read something with superheroes next. Well, this is definitely not it. Sabrina is a deeply unsettling graphic novel that came out in 2018. A woman named Sabrina goes missing, and her boyfriend Teddy goes to Colorado where he's looked after by his friend, an Air Force cybersecurity technician named Calvin. Soon, a video of Sabrina's fate starts to circulate across the internet. Teddy takes solace in an InfoWars-type radio program that traffics in conspiracy theories around Sabrina's death, and those conspiracy theories soon start to target Calvin. Cheerful stuff, Ryan. Dronasso was only 29 when Sabrina was published, and he was already a promising young cartoonist at the time, having debuted with the 2016 graphic novel Beverly, a collection of interlinked short stories. But Sabrina is very much a product of the way so many violent tragedies are now playing out in the public sphere, where they take on a new and different life when exposed to anonymous internet commentators. While working on Sabrina, Dronasso listened to Infowars, he watched Elliot Rogers' misogynistic screed, he looked at the conspiracy theories polluting the aftermath of the Sandy Hook shooting, and you can see Dernasso's anxieties around these reactions infusing the story of Sabrina. I'm Roman Segel. I'm Ryan Joe. And we are two guys who just want a little quiet. So, Roman, you actually informed me about this book, which I didn't know about at all, even though it came out to much fanfare almost five years ago. How did you hear about it? My wife is a New Yorker subscriber. <laughs> and every once in a while, as we go to bed, she's reading an article and she's like, hey, this is weird. You'd like this. <laughs> and not only was it weird, it was about a comic. And she didn't know what to make of it. And she dog-eared the page. I read it a few days later and I, I got it from the library. And this is a book that just kind of sat with me. And it's funny when you brought this back up, because this is kind of our, our traipse through the alphabet, S is for Sabrina. You wanted to read this. I'm like, oh, yeah, I, I remember this. I forwarded to the New Yorker article that, that my wife had sent me. And as I'm rereading it, I didn't even remember. <laughs> I mean, I kind of knew there's a murder, but it wasn't what you think it is. And I was still kind of like on the on the edge of my seat as I was reading it the second time around. It's it's a weird, disturbing one, Ryan. And again, and like all the weird, disturbing books, because there's like a, a kernel of truth in it. Yeah, this book is so incredibly haunting. And, you know, part of it is what's untold 
and unseen. We know that Sabrina is murdered in a horrific way. We don't actually see it. We just kind of see people's reactions to having seen the video. But what also is so disturbing is the way this book is illustrated. It's actually very, it's very beautifully illustrated, but all of the action takes place in these boring environments, office buildings and suburbs and fast food restaurants. The people that Dernasso illustrates are also just not very emotive. There's this chill to the entire book, despite the driving narrative drama being this murder mystery and horrific murder. The way people react to it is just so chilly because we get the sense that they're traumatized, but we don't see that trauma. We don't fully see how they're processing it. And it only starts to become evident as the as a novel sort of unravels and you start to see more and more about how these characters are reacting to it. And it's often in very surprising ways and very kind of disturbing ways as well. Yeah. The, the art, it's interesting to start there because it is very muted and, you know, there's an almost like Chris Ware kind of style that Dronasso has, but at least when Chris Ware does something, there's, I feel like there's a little bit of, motion and weirdness to what he's doing and uh, the repetitive grid of panels and this is a compliment right to what jonas is doing it just kind of like drones on to these like very simple things or just be whole pages where you watch someone wandering around a room or going to work and and then that thing happens that thing in the dialogue happens that really jars you out of the simplicity of the day-to-day that that is so familiar right? It's almost like it's a security camera feed. It's sort of documentarian in the precision in which the book tracks people's movements as they roam around the room, as they pick up objects like radios, visually very mundane. But it also gives a lot of import to the objects that are depicted in the panel, whether it's a radio or whether it's the character quietly mopping the floor or doing the dishes, it, it creates a sort of almost an emotional weight because the camera just lingers on these people who are incredibly traumatized doing these very mundane tasks. Um, you almost feel the weight of the crime sitting on them, even as they just do housework. And that gives the book like a, just a tremendous amount of power as well, like way more power than if they just burst out into tears and started crying. Just to get, to get right into it, man, it's... Look, it's a murder mystery. Yeah, I guess. But that's not where this thing goes. And even for a while, you think that's what you're going to find out what happened. But the the more chilling part is the boat, the most boring part, the pages and pages of emails and messages from the conspiracy theorists that write these people. Yeah. Um, Yeah. you You hear about. Yeah. You hear about like people getting death threats on Twitter and getting hate email and stuff. But this book and it's, 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 you see two things at, at like length, depth, and detail. And I didn't realize until you said in the intro that what Jonasso did to kind of like really embed himself in the culture. So two things, right? The droning on of the Infowars, Alex Jones type stuff that just keeps playing out. And then the emails from the people who listen to that stuff who are coming after Calvin. Like it is haunting because this seems pretty accurate to... What is happening to people in our world today? I mean, a chill went up my spine when whatever the truth warrior writes Calvin and like gives his daughter's address in Florida. 
what's so scary about it is how Calvin gets sucked into this because he's just a nice guy. He's childhood friends with Teddy. He knows that Teddy's girlfriend is missing when, and he just offers Teddy a place to stay. And through that, he gets sucked into this, this mess, this of, of conspiracy theories that ultimately cause him to have to flee. It's interesting because yeah, there is a murder mystery, but the mystery gets solved pretty early on. And there's no real, you know, you, most murder mysteries, there's sort of like a back and forth about who did it. There's these red herrings. This one is actually pretty straightforward. You figure out who killed her. It's revealed very early on. It's revealed essentially why. I, I actually thought the reveal was was incredibly haunting because the way it's depicted, these two people work at a newspaper. They get a videotape and... There's this whole kind of to-do where they're trying to find a VHS player. Like, where's is how do we how do we play this? And he finds like an old Barney videotape in the VHS player, and he's kind of commenting on that. And then he he puts in the videotape that he receives, and you don't see what they see, but you see their reaction, and it's very quiet. Like one of the characters is like, "I I think we need to call the police." And then what follows is this chaos. And that's when the book just goes crazy, where all of these conspiracy theories, all of these people are coming in and imposing their own opinions on this murder. I read a review where where the reviewer mentioned how it is impossible to mourn quietly in this environment. Where there's so much there's noise. There's so much noise, in. and you're just yanked into it. But what is also disturbing is how Teddy just takes comfort in InfoWars-style program and how the conspiracy theories around his girlfriend's death are, are, are like a security blanket for him i guess in a way provides meaning to him because he has no idea why his girlfriend died and it was so unexpected and so pointless for her to die um and so suddenly you have all these conspiracy theories saying oh it was because of some sort of government plot and it creates reason and meeting around this meaningless act of cruelty. And it creates this, this comfort area zone for him. While at the same time, those conspiracy theories are targeting the friend who took him in. And that creates this tension. You have no idea whether that's going to create another act of violence, which I think is also kind of brilliant about this book. It's like you think the event is over. It is over. The murder is over. But suddenly it creates this other event that causes this even greater rift. Well, and what's frustrating about it is when you kind of get emotionally punched by something, you don't want to participate. You don't want to engage. Like, all Calvin did was help his buddy out. And he's kind of a friend, and the weight of the conspiracy theory world kind of came against him. And, like, this is why we can't have nice things. Like, it's almost like, man, you don't want to help your neighbor because the trolls might come after you. And that's just like that. What, what's so chilling about this book is so much of our society, this doxing kind of culture where at the whims of a tweet, you can be attacked. You know, it's a, it's upsetting. You know, I, uh, I think about right. this a lot. Like if we were to say the wrong thing on this podcast and it were to get picked up and get posted on the wrong 4chan board, game over. Right. It's this feeling of constantly being under surveillance, you know? Where even in your most intimate moments, by which in this case, mourning the loss of somebody close to you is placed under the microscope, that is judged. 
and nothing you do is private even when you're doing absolutely nothing to put these things in the in the public eye yeah he leads a very boring life right he like goes to work comes home goes to work comes home facetimes his you know estranged wife and kid plays video games goes to work comes home that's all he does and yet no one is safe yeah i was blown away by how many different facets this book had there's also like this incredible attention to detail to the individual characters and what they are going through you know even if you take out the murder there's enough there with each of the characters to understand like that they are fully fleshed out and have their own kind of unique inter- internal lives like that op- the opening sequence with Sabrina and her sister and they're just Sandra two yeah. sisters yeah and they're just two sisters chatting about the cat about things they want to do next summer it's both very mundane but also very specific you get a very good sense of like, the relationship between these two women and it's also very sneaky because it sets up the murder that happens later because Sandra tells the story of her being sort of accosted by these two men. Initially, mm-hmm. it just seems like a story she tells about a vacation that she went on and a scary incident that happened. But that actually sets up what happens later on. It's this moment of darkness that interjects in this very domestic scene. And I feel mm-hmm. like that's what Sabrina is all about yeah you know it's funny you mentioned kind of the sisters there's kind of two interesting arcs that i don't remember from the first time i read it and they're about sandra the sister right who's you know far away from what's happening with kind of the boyfriend and and calvin and the conspiracy theorists but but there's kind of two moments towards the end of the book right throughout the front of the book sandra is trying to get in touch right with the boyfriend and He's just kind of catatonic. It's, there's no way to kind of simple or explain. It. It's just he just doesn't he can't function. He's just so. I, I don't know, immobilized by by this tragedy that he can't make any sense out of, you know, ironically, so much that he like takes solace in the, the conspiracy theorists, but or the Alex Jones character. But the moment where, you know, obviously you get to see all the emails that Calvin gets and all the Alex Jones stuff. But the moment where you see Sandra on stage, somewhere page 150 or so, just kind of reading all the death threats. She's just reading 10 or 12 emails that she got from different people. So it's not like just the one truth warrior coming after him. And then later on, where she kind of really lashes out at the boyfriend for, you know, him not Mm. being there, him not being a part of the family through this whole thing. It, It really does add a dimension to to kind of the impact this has, not just to the catatonic boyfriend. Yeah, that was actually really interesting, right? Sandra's perspective is super important because she's the one who's really closest to Sabrina. And mm-hmm. the boyfriend, I forgot, it was a Teddy or Calvin? Teddy. Calvin's the Air Force guy. Yeah. You know, Teddy, you know, he, he just kind of like recedes into himself. He flees, right? I mean, when his girlfriend is missing, he runs away. He runs to his buddy, Calvin, and his buddy, Calvin, takes him in. So, so Teddy's never really like a particularly sympathetic character. Like... Calvin is very empathetic. He actually goes above and beyond to try to help out his friend. Sandra's just trying to cope with the death of her sister. And then Teddy, he kind of abandons everybody. And there is this reaction to what he did and this sort of selfishness around it. You can't empathize with him, right? Because what would you do in this situation? I might 
if the worst of the worst were to happen, I might just become this, you know, shell of a man. Right. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, he's grieving, honestly. And it's hard to judge somebody for grieving in their way. Everyone's going to do it very, very differently. And his way of doing it is to kind of like go run away. And if he has any responsibilities to anybody else, he really can't, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. rise to anything. You know, and the sister's response is feels a little bit more more typical, right? She's trying to go out in the world. She's trying to continue to function. She's having a hard time doing it, but she's she's certainly she's not as isolated. And I actually think, like you know, just her her perspective is important also because her, you know, being around Teddy is stifling. He just sits in the room and listens to this strange radio program. You know, his the sister's kind mm-hmm. of going out and trying to interact with the world, trying to show her grief, trying to show what she's going through to everybody else in the world you know she like that moment where she's reading that you alluded to where she's reading the the hate mail in during that open mic night and she's trying to i think relieve some of that weight from her from her shoulders for her and calvin those conspiracy theories just weigh so heavily on them it mm-hmm. creates this greater burden that they have to go through on top of the the on top of you know losing her her sister and for for Teddy it's it's a it's a moment of comfort for him it creates meaning and reason in a situation where he can't find any meaning and reason it's just very interesting to see how different people respond to these to these circumstances to these conspiracies and it kind yeah, of like shows the, the attraction. Like, why are people so attracted to the conspiracy theories around Sandy Hook? It provides a comforting reason why they happened. That is kind of one of the great ironies of it, right? Like, obviously, it comes back to not bite Teddy in the ass. But, you know, I, I do think there's a moment when he kind of has his breakup with it when he realizes they're, they evolve their point of view to kind of create a conspiracy around something that was very real to him. But in moments of pain, people seek comfort in what is the easiest explanation, maybe, or an easier explanation. It's the the interiority of this book is really what gives it its power. It's it's a quiet interiority, but it's disturbing is not the right word. It's not a disturbing book. You're not going to be upset about something you saw or heard when you read it. You're just going to be... I was definitely disturbed by it, though. I mean, visually, it's not. It's because visual. If you just look at it, I think the only disturbing panels where you see the killer and he's committed suicide in the bathtub. But it, it's the way it's drawn. He's just you just yeah, see this yeah, kind yeah. of guy who looks like he's sleeping in a in a bathtub. Yeah. There's this interesting dichotomy between how staid the pictures are, how precisely drawn they are, how mundane they look, almost like an instruction manual at times. And yet, what is behind all of that? is these images are just informed by this incredibly gruesome tragedy. I was actually reading the New Yorker article, and uh, Dernasso initially illustrated the murder of Sabrina, of her being stabbed multiple times, and then he kept pulling back on the most violent aspects. Initially, he illustrated uh, Teddy undone by grief, and... In subsequent drafts, he took out the murder. He made the characters a little bit more inscrutable. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I'm really glad he did because not seeing the murder is probably even more disturbing than if we were to see it. In a way, you know, if we were to see it, it would be something that is kind of typical of, of the graphic novel medium. 
I'm still kind of like stuck with. I don't know if I found it disturbing. Like I, I it's it's upsetting, but not disturbing. And maybe it, it. I don't think it's as simple as the art. Maybe because it is fiction. You know, it's, we've read a lot of d- disturbing things. Like you know, you have the rabbit, my friend Jammer, and maybe because they're rooted in reality, or they are reality. Whereas this is, it's rooted in reality, but it's not, right? It's a, it's kind of a proxy for InfoWars, but it's not, you know, it's a proxy for Sandy Hook, but it's not, it's a, this fictional murder. I don't know. I'm up, I was upset. Well, disturbing to me is it sits with you longer and upsetting is it upset me when I read it. And, and then maybe because of the mundane nature of kind of how it's presented, I've moved on. Actually, is it, is it because it's fiction that you were able to move on? Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Well, that's always yeah. interesting. So I've always been so I've actually always been interested in this because yeah, I've noticed like when we read a horror comic or something that's fictional but scary, you always kind of say, well, it's not as, you know, horrifying or disturbing as like the Holocaust or it's like a, like a like a book about the Holocaust. Like that's real horror. Yeah. And I've always kind of wondered how you process sort of like horror fiction because to me I don't know. It's sort of like comparing the Exorcist to Schindler's List, right? Schindler's List obviously is based off of something that really happened, of true horrors. Exorcist versus the killing field. But they 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 hit you on different registers. And for me, something that's fictional but horrific can just can be just as disturbing as something that happened in real life. Even though I understand that one is made up and the other one isn't. I guess there's a certain emotional truth that can be captured in something like Sabrina, that might be harder to capture if you're trying to have more fidelity to events that actually happened. My, you know, maybe there's just more leeway for, you know, Dernasso in the case of Sabrina to explore some of those darker aspects of humanity, like psychologically, what is happening to you? Than if he had to kind of stay faithful to, you know, historical events. So I don't know. They're both disturbing to me, but they just kind of hit on different, you know, it's just different registers. Well, Ryan, I'm I'm not sure if I have that much more to say on this book because I, I it kind of it sat with me and I feel like I've kind of moved on, you know, two times on and I, and I did enjoy it, but I have to ask, would you recommend this to someone? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just well, I mean. Like if you're looking for a happy read, no. Um, <laughs> I but, I think yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I I I mean this one really just stuck with me. I just think that Dernasso is an incredibly powerful storyteller, and he's able to slip in these very kind of disturbing moments that I feel reveal just awful awful things. About people, but in a quiet way, in a quiet, understated way, and and that that really it really kind of sneaks up on you. I mean, yeah. I guess you talk about the mundanity of evil, right? I mean, and this is this is it, but it's not even purely evil. I mean, certainly the the character who kills Sabrina is, but what that moment triggers in everybody else, not just you know. Obviously, the 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 confusion that Calvin has to go through as he watches his friend Teddy sort of descend into this sort of madness, or mm-hmm. or Sandra 
dealing with the grief, but also all of these conspiracy theorists who start coming out of the woodwork and start making their voices heard. And this alternate truth that people mm -hmm. are like almost frothing at the mouth to uphold and to, and to assert as like the one truth that is incredibly disturbing to me. And that is well, because it's so that, salient to the moment right. we live in. It, it's a perspective yeah. on something that's actually happening. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But you know, you just see it so so clearly when you see it through the eyes of these of these people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I would definitely recommend it. You know, it's a just a brilliant graphic novel. How about you? Would you would you recommend it? I don't know. I don't know because I enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it twice now, but I mean, I do think it's a lens in, you know, to not just the crazies, but the why of the crazies, but the impact of the crazies. You know, you hear about these things, people being doxxed and death threatened and stuff, but to really see it play out in a kind of relatable, terrible situation, that is the horror. And so if only to kind of gain an interior look and, and truly get some empathy like it, it if anything it makes me more angry that some of these people have been allowed to persist and i'm not talking about the conspiracy theory people the truth warriors so to speak i'm talking about the alex joneses of the world or or the digital platforms that allow them to persist and propagate right like to, to let these things fester so if you want to get mad <laughs> yeah go for it i guess all right, that's the blurb. If you want to get mad, <laughs> go for it. <laughs> Ryan, I, I, I do have another question because, you know, we're coming up on the on the tail end of the alphabet. Yeah. What's the question, Roman? Well, what are we reading next time? For the next episode, we are going to air an interview with one of our favorite cartoonists that we originally published in your other podcast, Modern Minorities. T is for Tomine, as in Adrian Tomine. Roman and I had the had the privilege of talking to Adrian Tomine. Roman and I had the privilege of talking to Tomine because the movie Shortcomings was debuting. And Shortcomings, of course, is uh, based off of Tomine's seminal graphic novel. So we're going to air that conversation in the next episode. You can listen to us acting like Chris Farley on The Chris Farley Show. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Be sure to share with a friend, subscribe, and leave us a review wherever you get your favorite podcasts. See lots of pretty pictures of the books we read at qtdcomics.com. And since we're sure no one's listening, prove us otherwise. Shoot an email over to say what I got right and what Ryan got wrong. qtdcomics at gmail.com. Give you a social media handle, but we're old, and that feels like too much work. I'm Roman Segel. And I am and have always been Ryan Joe.